Hear the word of God from Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. And uh, you can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. So this is my last sermon in the book of Hebrews. And I've loved our time in the book of Hebrews. We have one more sermon left, but that's going to be preached next week while I'm out of town. Um, Danny, I believe, is preaching that one. Yes, yeah. Danny's preaching that one on Hebrews 13. So this is my last sermon in the book of Hebrews. And we've been in this book since January. It's been a very long time. And I've loved being in this book with all of you. It speaks, and I think it speaks to all of us, because it, it talks often about a, to a group of people who have been persecuted, who may be kind of being oppressed slightly and being tempted to walk away from their faith. It talks often about how Jesus is better, how Jesus is greater than the law of Moses, than what they came from, how he's greater than anything in this world. The author of Hebrews wanted to show that Jesus is better than anything else and wanted to encourage his people to keep on walking. Now, actually, some scholars believe that this whole book was actually one long, in-depth sermon. Could you imagine how long that sermon would have been? I'll be honest with you guys. If I preached that long, I would have walked out of myself. But they believe that this once long sermon, that believe that chapter 12 was like the climax of the sermon. Chapter 13 is more like the practical application. But chapter 12 is like the main point that this author was trying to hammer home, or the giver of the sermon was trying to hammer home. Keep on running the race with Jesus. He's your champion. He's your arch ego who took full punishment of sin upon himself, who lived a life that you couldn't live perfectly. Keep on running the life of faith with him. The end of chapter 12, the author is saying, in Christ, we now have an unshakable kingdom, an unshakable hope, an unshakable city, an unshakable life. This passage that David read earlier is actually a very difficult passage to understand and interpret. I hope most of you guys, when you heard that, were kind of like, I expect most of you guys were like, what? 
It was, it's not an easy passage. It uses a lot of Old Testament, a lot of illustrations that might readily have been understood by us. But I want you to understand this. The original audience would have picked up on it right away. See, in this text, what we might have missed is there's this image of searching for a city, according to N.T. Wright and other scholars. It's this original audience wouldn't have missed it. A city had much significance for the people at this time. A city represented a place of safety, of permanence, and prosperity. This is actually deeply embedded into the Hebrew identity. There were often, you guys remember this, after Egypt, there were nomads wandering the land in search of the promised land, longing for the city. Then came Jerusalem, which literally translate the city of peace. They put their hopes into that city. That's what they were looking for. So in a sense, the writer is saying, we're all searching for the city. We're all searching for that city, a city of peace, what we're putting our hopes into, the unshakable city, a place of permanence, peace, prosperity, and fulfillment. I mean, isn't that why so many of us work so hard at getting those, that degree? Work so hard at your job. Work so hard to get the money, get the, ensure your kids have all that they need. Isn't that why we often get married and have a family? We want a permanent place of peace. We want the longings of our heart to be settled. We want prosperity. We want fulfillment. Like I said, we want the human condition. We want to be known. We want to be loved. We want safety. We want comfort. We long for the city that's unshakable. And so the author here shares with us the elements of what a shakable life looks like, a shakable city, and what an unshakable life or an unshakable city looks like. In the very beginning, verses 18 through 22, it says this, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest, and a sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Very difficult passage to understand. And so when, when I go to a difficult passage, I kind of have a few go-tos. I, I type, go into my Bible program and I type it in, but then there's a guy that I like to check out. How did he interpret the scripture? His name is Tim Keller. I often go to him. I quote him a lot. So I said, what did Tim Keller say about this? And this is what he says. I want to quote him really quickly. He says, verses 18 through 21 are the shakable life. One of the keys to understanding the passage is the fact that verse 18 and verse 22 start with the same verb. It's a significant verb. It starts with come. You have not come. And then it says in verse 22, you have come. There are a lot of words for that word in Greek, for approaching. But this is not a word that simply means to move from one geographical location to another. This is a word with very deep religious and spiritual meaning. It refers to our fundamental spiritual approach to God in life. Everyone has one. Everybody has one. How do you face life? How do you face the world? How do you face troubles? If someone questions you or criticizes you, how do you face them? How do you face yourself in the mirror? If there is a God and he were to appear and call you to account, how would you face that? What would you refer to? What would you talk about? Tim Keller, Tim Keller says that this is the, that, that the term that come there. It says it's your spiritual approach to how would you go to God? How would you approach him? And apart from the gospel, what my, I know what my answer would be. I tried my best. I mean, I even default to that even now in my own life. I'll still say this to Gina when we get into argument or when I mess up. I'm like, I did my best. I tried my best. And I, what I'm really saying is I determine what my standards are. 
I decide what's a good husband and a good father and I'm what I'm supposed to be. And I say, I'm not perfect, but I've tried my best. I'm better than Billy. I'm better than all those other guys, so I've done a pretty good job, right? And isn't that basically how we often approach life? I'm not as bad as that person. Have you seen that guy, what he does? I'm not as bad as that. I've done a pretty good job. I, I must be pretty good, right? No. I'll say that again. You're not. It's a sham. It's a lie. You have not really tried your best. You've not even come close. Can I just tell you, in all honesty, when I look at my own life, I have not come close to even trying with everything to do my best. I don't even try that hard. My natural default that I go to is caring about my own needs over everybody else's pretty much all the time. My natural default is I want everybody else to understand where I'm coming from, but I don't often take the time to understand where they're coming from. My natural default is to yell at everybody else when they mess up, but for me to be like, whoa, 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 you should forgive me when I mess up. I don't try my best. I'm just going to be honest with you. And if I'm real with myself, I see the depth of my selfishness, the depth of my sin, and the depth of my brokenness. If I stopped wearing masks, even with myself, for one moment, one second, then I realize I don't even hold up to my own principles, let alone God's. I don't even hold up to my own standards, let alone God's. I'm going to say some depressing news to all of you guys. We are all moral failures. Every single one of us. It's false to think otherwise. And guys, we can, see we can see the failing of this thinking when we did our best spiritual approach, when we see this famous incident here that verses 18 through 21 talks about at Mount Sinai. This is a famous encounter the Israelites have with God. God came down on Mount Sinai. His presence came down into the mountain, and he gave the Ten Commandments, and the people got close. They drew near here because God was here. But guess what? As they drew near, they didn't have anything close to a warm, cozy, comfortable experience. They were shattered. They were broken. They were shaken. Actually, the mountain itself was shaken by the presence of God. The Hebrew writer here says, like honestly, says these big negative images of gloom and darkness and fire, storm and trumpet blast. It shattered their experience. This isn't some, wow, it's God's voice. Wow, God's here. It's pretty awesome. No, it said literally, stop, God. We can't take it. Every place the presence of God comes close, comes into a building, comes into a place, comes into a mountain, it becomes fatal to go near. Moses, it says, is trembling with fear. Now, of all people, we can say who's pretty good. It was Moses. He gave up being a prince of Egypt to go identify himself as a slave for the sake of Christ. It literally just said that earlier in Hebrews 12. Or Hebrews 11. He's a hero of the faith, but this hero of the faith is trembling with fear before God. Moses was afraid. It was a horrible experience to get near to God then. Why? Let me give you a little kind of illustration to, to take, take you back why. Back in the day, a few years back, I was helping coach a basketball a team. It was an elite AAU team. You guys, you guys know what AAU is? Anybody? Yeah. So it was like an elite basketball team. So what this was, was it was literally the best basketball players from all the high schools in the whole area. So about like nine, ten high schools, but the best, best basketball players would come together, would form this team, this AAU team. And so, man, they, they were really good basketball players. You know, they were told since they were kids how good they were. These were the kids, since they hit their growth spurts probably, they were told how good they were. 
These were the kids, I mean, who were awesome. They were the best players in their high schools, best players in their regions, and they gathered together, and man, they were awesome. They trained, they worked so hard, they trained, they'd, they'd do the jump program, they'd scrimmage together all the time. They were incredible. They used to, they're the ones who'd always play up a level, play with the older kids, and just always dominate. But then we took this team to a national AAU tournament. Not a regional one, but a national one, and they experienced a rude awakening all of a sudden they weren't the best. All of a sudden they were getting crushed in every facet of the game. All of a sudden when they used to be the one dunking on people, they were getting dunked on. They were being embarrassed. When they used to embarrass people, they were getting embarrassed. And when they came face to face with real excellence, real division one college basketball players, real potential NBA talent, they became radically aware that they were not. And they crushed them. It absolutely crushed them because they put their whole identity in the fact that I'm an excellent basketball player. Their whole identity was built on the fact that I was told I can go to the NBA. Their whole identity was the fact that I'm a basketball player, that's who I am, but in reality, I can't make a Division I scholarship. These guys are so much better than me. When you get into the presence of God, all that you built up about yourself, it all falls apart. Your whole approach to life falls apart. Your whole approach to the world falls apart. Your view of yourself falls apart. When you get into the presence of God, you're sitting here and they said, I'm pretty good. I'm better than so-and-so. When you get into the presence of God, you're like, oh, this is what excellence is. This is what holiness is. This is what beauty is. And your life, as whatever it was built on, shatters. Every single person in the Bible, whenever they get near God, gets rocked to the core. Job, in the end of Job, literally just kind of like says, I despise myself. I'm going to throw myself down. Peter says, depart from me. I can't be in your presence. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Isaiah, when he sees the glory of God in Isaiah 6, literally says, woe, woe is me. I am undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips, living amongst a people of unclean lips. Literally, he's, he's saying, I am shaking, I am shattered, I cannot be in this presence. Because in the presence of God, finally, it's revealed our smallness, our flawedness, our futile efforts of trying to be big. Most people don't like what I'm saying. Maybe you don't believe what I'm saying, but in the presence of God, it is impossible to deny. But here's the thing, most people haven't had a literal experience with the literal presence of God right? So maybe you're still sitting in this worldview and cult, this idea and this philosophy thinking, I'm still good enough. It's still, what I build my life on is still good enough. Can I tell you something? This is what God is referring to here is that if you, those of us who have not experienced the little presence of God, that God is literally shaking the foundations of the earth and of heaven so that you can see that what you're building your life on is futile. The world will act as a means of bringing this awareness to you. It is inevitable. Because if you build your life on anything else, the world will still shake you down. If you decide, I build my life on being the smartest, you're going to go to a situation, you're going to go to a school, you're going to go to a work situation where people are smarter than you. It's going to happen. If you build your life on money, economic downturns will happen. And it'll be hard, and it'll be life-shattering. When the stock market crashed in 2008, there were a string of suicides in Wall Street. The acting chief financial officer, Freddie Mac, hanged himself. The French, money man, the French money manager who invested the wealth of Europe's leading families lost $1.4 billion, and he committed suicide. You see, when you build your life on anything else, the world will shatter you. 
It might happen through disease. If you build your life on your health, done five Ironmans and I eat really healthy, disease will still come to you. And your life will shatter when the doctor walks in and says, this is what you have. If you build your life on maybe on finding Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, and then you get into that relationship and realize, wait a minute, marriage is hard work. I did not, th- I, I thought once I got married, everything would be awesome and easy and, you know, all my loneliness that I feel and all that stuff will just go away. What? That doesn't happen overnight? Man, and your life is shattered. When you build your life on the shakeable, it's inevitable that the world will shake and what you build it on will crumble and will shatter. What is your city? What do you build it on? What is your hope? Is it shakeable? What is your primary source of permanence and security in this life? What is your primary source of coming before God and saying, I'm good? Is that, is that what it is? Is it saying, I'm good enough? Is it saying, what is your source of security and permanence in this world? Is it saying, I have enough in my bank account? I have my health. I've done a good job raising my kids. Everything shatters in this world because the earth and the heavens itself shakes. The invitation of Hebrews is to make God your primary source of these things. That he be your primary security, your identity, your fulfillment. That he be the foundation of your city so that in him you have the peace, permanence, and fulfillment you seek, whether or not he provides you with a home, a marriage, job, or wealth. In him you find your security, your permanence, the city you long for. So what is the unshakable life? How do we not put our hope in the things that will fail when everything shakes? Here's what it says. The writer says Jesus is the better city, the only sure city that he leads to the unshakable life. Verses 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I love, I want you to get this, I want you to picture this. I love how Jesus' crucifixion bore a similarity to Mount Sinai. See, Jesus' crucifixion occurred on top of a hill, on top of a mountain, there was darkness all around, Rocks were split, lightning and thunder flashed. I want you to get this. He was himself absorbing the judgment of a sinful people in the presence of a holy God. He himself came. He himself approached. And he took the sinfulness that was all in us so that now when I approach God, I do so without fear because anything that ever could make God reject me was put upon Jesus. He was rejected for me. He took my sin and I was given his righteousness. He was shaken for me so that my foundation is secure. Last week I said that Jesus was our arch ego. He was our champion. He's the one that took the fullness of every penalty completely upon him. He took and paid it all. So there is no more punishment left for us. He was a champion that took it all. So that my foundation is now built on something secure, his righteousness. It says in verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Anybody know who Abel is, by the way? 
Just nod your head if you know who Abel is. All right? So who came, who's the third child of, of Adam and Eve? Trivia. Good job. Who is number one? Cain. Number two? Good. Wow, you guys know your Bible. I'm impressed. Genesis 4, it says Cain had killed his brother Abel. And when Cain tried to deny, God said to Cain, Cain, what do you, your, your, your brother's blood cries out from the ground for vengeance. Well, we murdered Jesus, but his blood does not cry out for vengeance. Instead, it cries out for our forgiveness. That is the word, that is the better word that it says here. You see, when Abel's blood cried out for vengeance, Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness. The gospel gives you God and all his blessings and all his promises as a gift, not because you deserve them, but because Christ has purchased them for you. Not given according to your merits, but as a gift of grace. Guys, I want you to understand this. This unshakable understanding, this unshakable foundation is this. Guys, that you were not in yourself good enough. That we are all moral failures. But our champion came into this world, lived the perfect life of love, and took upon us, to, upon himself, all the fullness of the penalty that we deserve. So that our foundation is built on his righteousness, what the champion did. It's like, like we talked about last week, like in Greek mythology, is if the champion went forward before us. Our security is not built on how strong our arms are in battle. Our security is built on, man, Hercules is going to win the fight. So do you believe Hercules is strong enough? Do you believe Hercules will go and dominate the other army and the Greek armies will be like, yeah, Hercules, he's, he's the strongest. He's going to win the fight. We're secure. I'll just take a nap during this battle because he's won it. Guys, our security is built on the fact that our Jesus, our champion, took upon himself the full punishment that we deserve and he wins the battle. And the level of our security, the, the level how high, high our security is, is completely related or completely dependent on how secure and how powerful Jesus is. And he is all-powerful. Do you hear that? Our unshakable kingdom, our unshakable foundation, our unshakable city is unshakable because Jesus was shaken for us. And we now have his righteousness. The ways that you have tried to fulfill the human condition, and you guys all hear me, I've said it over and over again, this is the human condition, I really believe this, is that we all desire to be known. And this idea of being known is this idea of we all desire intimacy and relationship, but we also all desire to be loved. And in this desire to be loved, that means we want security in that love. We want to know that we're never going to be lonely. We want to know that we have security in this love, this peace in this love. And we all want purpose. And all that we do, all that we strive to do to fulfill this kind of longing, whether it's in a husband and a wife and a child and popularity and power and money and wealth, all that we try to do, it's all built on shakable foundations, on shakable things. And the world always shakes. Right, isn't that reality? Isn't that true? I'm, I'm terrible with science, but isn't that like, aren't we always moving on this earth, right? We're on plates. Yeah, I know. I didn't study science in college. Liberal arts guy, worthless degree. <laughs> We're always moving. The earth is always shaking. Life always happens, doesn't it? And you're walking along one day and everything seems to be going well, but then that person who you put so much hope and trust and love in is taken away from you. And then your life is shaking to the core. 
Life is moving and it's happening and you're building up a nice little nest egg and all of a sudden the economy goes down or you lose your job and all of a sudden you're shaken to the core. Life is moving and you have this great relationship but all of a sudden you realize that, wait a minute, wait a minute, that person doesn't fulfill everything in me. I need something deeper. I need Jesus. Life will always shake you. You need to be, have something that is unshakable. But when Jesus is your city, when Jesus is your foundation, the writer of Hebrews says it gives you security. Verse 28, a city that cannot be shaken. For the foundation of the city is the righteousness, this gift of Jesus, that, this unchangeable promise that he's given you. But it also leads to this. It leads to unbounded joy. I love how this says it's verse 20. It says, innumerable angels in festal gathering. What does that mean? And I want you to hear this. Literally, it means like angels in party clothes, right? I don't know what party clothes means to you. Some of you guys might think like, oh, like a formal party. But I picture like a t-shirt, tuxedo t-shirt. You know what I'm saying? Like the angels are wearing tuxedo t-shirts. You know, he, they're, they're partying right now. They're hanging out and having a great time. God's presence is like a gigantic party. Every time God pulls back the curtain and we get a glimpse of heaven, it's like a party. Revelation talks about it. It's like the ultimate wedding feast. I like, I'll be honest, I like wedding receptions. It's a good time because most people who would never dance will actually get up and dance at a wedding. Typically because brides are like, you better dance at my wedding, you know, but... All right, and then they, they do all those like group dances that you wouldn't do any other time, but they do it at a wedding, and you're like, I'll do that, yeah, and you get up there and do the Cupid shuffle and all that kind of stuff. I love it. I love wedding receptions. It's a blast. It's a party, and we have a good time. Every time when, when we see a picture of heaven, we see a wedding party reception dancing. I mean, we see angels in tuxedo t-shirts. Do you understand where the presence of God is now when our foundation is secure in Jesus? We get joy. We get joy because no longer are we worried. No longer do we come to the, the Mount Sinai. No longer do we come to the presence of God and be like, is it good enough? Did I do enough? Did I try hard enough? No longer do we have to wear masks to be like, okay, let me hide who I am really inside. No longer do we have to worry, well, can I still be loved? No, we go into the presence of God, stripped bare, no masks on, fully being who you are in intimacy and say, yes, I am loved. Yes, I am known. Yes, we can party in this joy. And it's secure. It is secure. I love it. It also leads to awe and intimacy. Verse 28 says, worship and reverence and awe. The awe of worship is translated often to fear. And to worship in fear, this is not like a terror fear. This is not like watching a horror movie fear. It literally, in Christ, we, we we're, we're not, can't be shaky, so we have nothing to really fear in that way. It's more like this idea of, of, of awe. It's more like this incredible like majesty. When I look at the Grand Canyon and realize there's no like barriers or no handrails, I thought that was the stupidest thing in the world. Seriously, I'm like, how is there not a barrier over here? That's just dumb. And I saw kids like walking to the edge or like people like, hang, like sitting on there with their feet over. I'm like, no, that's just crazy. Because in, in my, when I look at that, I see I'm in awe. There's a fear, but it's beautiful. It is majestic. It's also a fear that a child has over a parent. You know, my dad is five foot three and a half, maybe five foot four, about 130 pounds. He's a small man. I mean, he just, he just is. Compared to me in particular, I'm like, I'm like you know, my dad is just not, a, not the biggest, strongest man in the world. He's not. But when I was a kid, 
my dad was the strongest man in the world, right? I used to tell all the kids, like, well, my dad could bench press 1,000 pounds. <laughs> you know, my dad could definitely beat up your dad, you know? And once again, like I said, my dad probably could not beat up that many dads, but I honestly believed in my heart that he was the strongest person in the world. A child has a fear of his parents. It's not a fear of terror. It's an all mixed in with intimacy. I love J.D. Greer has this definition of worship. It says this, it's all mixed with intimacy. All mixed with intimacy. Do you feel that way about God? Is he so massively awesome? Is he so incredible that you have this kind of like all mixed with intimacy? Because that's what we get to have. When our foundation is in Christ, when our foundation of the city is in the work of Jesus and it's unshakable, it leads to this awe mixed with intimacy. Tim Keller says, Jesus is the only God whom when you find him will satisfy you and when you fail him will forgive you. Jesus is the only God whom when you find him will satisfy you and when you fail him will forgive you. What is your kingdom? What is your city? What is your hope? What is your life built on? Is it shakable? When life shakes it, it, will it crumble? Or is it built on Jesus who was already shaken for you? Is it built on Jesus who's already championed it, took on the punishment of the shaking world upon himself already, and now gives you full righteousness so your confidence is unshakable because he's more powerful and he's overcome so well, now when you look at the human condition, now when you say, I'm coming to God, now when you look at your life and say, doesn't matter, I'm not good enough. But Jesus is great enough. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, God, we thank you that when we come face to face with you, we see we're in awe. God, but it's all mixed with intimacy because of the work of Jesus. It's the awe that we have of a Father who is so great and so good because of the work of Jesus. That our kingdom, our city, our lives are unshakable because it's built on the work of Jesus. So thank you, Jesus, for being our champion, for taking the fullness, the full punishment, and for giving us your righteousness. God, may we live the unshakable life in confidence in the work of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.